Welcome to No Challenges Remaining. I'm Ben Rothenberg. I am happy to be joined, although under unhappy circumstances, third time this year, being joined by Mark Ein, who is the owner of the City Open Tournament in Washington. Mark's been on the show twice before this year, and I've talked in April about how it was likely that the tournament, or possible, the tournament could be the first one back on the calendar and what that would mean. We talked in June about that plan sort of going ahead. But then, uh, unfortunately, just yesterday, Mark, you announced that the City Open will not be held in 2020, canceling the event for the year. Commiserations, first off. And then secondly, how, how did you come to this decision? What sort of changed between now and when we when we had last spoken? Yeah, well... Always, uh, always good to be with you, Ben. I always enjoy the conversation and um, a chance to talk through some of the some of the behind the scenes parts of the tennis world that I think you know a lot of people don't don't understand or get to get to mm-hmm. get insights on. So, um, yeah, I mean, when you and I talked, we were really excited. We were extremely confident. Um, we had made already a lot of things were in place, and the remaining tasks that needed to get resolved or, or obstacles that need to be overcome were all that we felt comfortable we were going to be able to achieve all of those. Um, and we were heading down that path. Everything was going well. And then I would say about two weeks ago, kind of everything took a U-turn. Um, you know, in the end, the main reason we had to decide yesterday is that if this tournament was going to start today or if it was going to start this weekend, you couldn't host it because uh, international players at the moment can't get into America without a quarantine and they can't get back to Europe after. So, Mm -hmm. uh, you kind of had to decide, are you gonna, can, you know, what's the chance that all gets resolved in the next three weeks and actually has to be obviously before three weeks because people have to get here. Um, and that was the biggest factor, but as I said, starting a couple of weeks ago, things just started heading in the wrong direction at the beginning of July the European Union imposed uh, travel restrictions on people coming from the United States. Virtually all the countries there have those travel restrictions. Probably in some level made it harder for us to get the waiver for people coming here. Although I, I do think, I think there is a reasonably good chance that those things ultimately get resolved in time yeah. for the U.S. Open, but not for us. And then it was just a series of other things. Obviously, the trend in the virus was heading in a very good place back then. And and it's obviously in a lot of America has reversed course. Washington remains actually a city that is in really good shape. Yeah. So it's good here. But the fact that it's bad and else, elsewhere uh, is problematic. And then there's just there was just a lot of stuff. I'm sure we'll get into it in the conversation. But we lost our, our bubble hotel because all their reservations for the two months after ours ended up getting canceled. And so they said, we can't just open for you and then shut down till November. So now they said they're going to be shut down till November. And, and, and they actually think it'll actually be January, February before hmm. it makes them to open. And then we went to our, another bubble hotel that was going to be really good too, that was really excited. And four days later, they called us exactly the same thing and said, we're, we're, and, and they were, they couldn't, both of them couldn't have been more sorry. They couldn't have been more excited to host us. Um, but just all these exogenous external events, you know, had an impact on them, which had an impact on us. And it was just one thing after another. So the short version is, as we sat here and we looked at the chances of being able 
to may have everything come together. It was it was a tall order, and it really is better to make these decisions to give everyone some some uh, time to plan. You know, players. I already know players were going uh, coming off vacation this week to start training. They all need to make their travel plans. Sponsors needed to activate. You need to get people from Hawkeye into the United States. You need to get media people, TV people. It just it's a you know all these tournaments are little mini ecosystems, and just too many people. We're counting on it, and really sadly and disappointingly, we had to decide not to go forward. We'll get into the, some of the details about different things in a second, but I'm first. I'm just curious. I know, remember in the last show you talked about sort of your your general optimism and your entrepreneurial optimism, and your I think just being around you, you have a very much a you know can do <laughs> attitude about a lot of things. How hard does that make it then, just for you personality wise? And as your as a businessman, your business style to to stop to sort of admit defeat on some level that this just isn't going to be possible this year. It, it's the hardest part of it, Ben. Yeah. I literally, I it is it cuts against every single instinct bone in my body. Like yeah. this is not, and I, you know, I one of the things I've taken pride in, and I've you know worked with so many great people over the years, and I think the one thing I'm known for is like the guy who never gives up till the bitter end ever. Mm-hmm. And, I, and there's a lot of times people uh, often say, just give up, just give up. It's fine. It's not meant to be. It's not meant to be. And I'm like, no, we've got to, we've got to, we've got to succeed. We have to get over the finish line. And um, it's interesting because this is a very, you know, unique experience. I can't think of another time that it's happened. But, you know, Ben, before we make this decision, we, I pulled all of our stakeholders, everyone, and people were supportive. They were, they, they were cheering for us. People wanted the event to happen, but there wasn't a single one who, when presented with the facts, thought we should do something different. Mm. And so I thought maybe I'll try the strategy in life for once. I'll tell you how it goes. Right now it doesn't feel so good. <laughs> no, <I can't laughs> but it's not the way I've lived my life. Um, but I, I actually do. I'm very at peace with it. Our team... And again, I, you know, it's me talking, but there is a team of people. I think we're all really sad and disappointed, but we're all at peace and feel like we made the right decision. Yeah, I, I have to think so, too. One of, the, one of the things you're sure talking about with the travel is the, I think what I, you correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's still a real lack of clarity for people about what the travel restrictions are, what they entail, and how they'll affect this very geographically diverse group of people who make up the tour, both, as you were saying, in terms of contractors, like Hawkeye people, who I think are almost all British, and then you have various other TV people, production people, lots of Italians in HP production, and then, you know, players from all over the world. Was there clarity for you guys in terms of what the travel would be? Was Did, did you understand, did players seem to understand what it was going to be like in terms of being able to come to America, specifically Washington first, I guess, and then New York, and then back to wherever they came from? Ideal, probably also then right to Europe, assuming they want to play this European clay swing that's still on the calendar. How muddled was that Was that outlook of the travel? Because I, well, I, I feel you, like I still you, have a lot of questions around it. Yeah, so you described, you described the logistics or the problem, which is that it's a, it's a, as I said, it's an ecosystem, very global ecosystem that comes together for every one of these events. And you described the Hawkeye, one of the things, and again, you know, and back to like this notion of like just making this decision and why now and why not push forward? Because literally the Hawkeye people are like, we have to know what's happening, you know, a week ago, two days ago, and we can't push it anymore. I mean, they yeah. literally were like, we can't push it anymore. And players are like saying the same thing. 
And so basically for our event, you effectively have to have people able to come to this country, not have to spend two weeks in quarantine. Obviously, they can go to New York. Thank goodness, because New York just imposed travel restrictions on 14 more states. But D.C. wouldn't have been one of them so far. Yeah. Go to New York and then they have to get back to Europe. That's it has to. That's what has to be for our sport to have this swing. Um, and it's really as simple as that. Uh but it affects a lot of people from a lot of places. And at the moment, that's not possible. I will say that there is progress being made on that. And I do think with the extra couple weeks that the U.S. Open has, and I think ironically, I actually think our cancellation will help get some, possibly get those resolved because it's now it's not just people saying we need it, but there's evidence that if you don't get it, events get canceled. And I don't think people want events canceled. So I, I think there's a reasonable chance they all get resolved. It just it just wasn't going to happen in time for our event. This is something I was going to get to later, but I'll get I'll get to it now. What yeah? What do you think? You guys weren't able to make it happen for this year. What has to change in order for the U.S. Open to be able to happen this year? And I will add, should people don't know, you also are involved with the USTA, so you have a not just an outside view of what's going on at USTA in that tournament. Well, I'm not. Yeah, I was on the board. I'm not anymore. But okay. obviously, we were. We were coordinating closely. They were a terrific partner. And I, I hopefully we'll get a chance to talk about the silver lining in this, was, which was incredible collaboration amongst mm. the stakeholders, all of our stakeholders, and especially everyone in the tennis world. So the USDA was fantastic. And I, I think really the only thing, the only really big thing for them is this travel, is this travel issues. They, we did get, um, we did get, we submitted 1,800 names for all the American events, which were players, guests, media, and those have all been approved. So actually, the, the visas that you need have all been approved. Uh, the quarantine uh, restriction is still out there, um, and it's being worked on. And then you need to get people back to Europe. So yeah. that's that's what they're working on. So those are still things that are still very much pending, I guess. They're, they're, still they're working on things that are in yeah. the works yeah is there is there sort of you mentioned obviously this time pressure you had with you know hawkeye guys need to come over and people who don't also don't know this for hawkeye hawkeye people come pretty early to a tournament it's like they have to set up all the cameras configure everything test everything you know before players basically get on the course they're they're doing a lot of infrastructure building um and and ben on that just yeah. on that we were actually going to use hawkeye live okay yeah which because you it, it just you really wanted to have as few people on the site. So using Hawkeye Live to, to only have a chair umpire and then you would use automatic line calling, which is a technology from that company, uh, made them have to come even earlier to make yeah. sure that, that was working. It's actually never been used, I don't think, in an official ATP event, only in the next-gen finals. Right. I Actually, sidebar on Hawkeye Live, you used it in World Team Tennis last year, I remember. We did. Um, so we I, did. I, I remember thinking that actually went... When I was there, I took actually it took me a while to realize when I was at, on, at the match <laughs> there weren't line judges because you hear these voices shouting out and it, you don't you don't yeah. if you're not looking for it you don't necessarily notice it right away. Well, and they have a variety of voices. They have male exactly. voices, female voices, accents. No, it actually is really good. I mean, look, I think umpires are an important part of the tennis ecosystem and they have a unique place uh, and it's a way for people to be engaged in the game. But I do think the technology is really good. There's a lot of reasons that it's a, it's good so it's it works well and we were going to use it this is the time to try it in an official event it would yeah. have been actually the first event where it was used back to back to us open and just the travel stuff and with this uncertainty still here and what you were talking about i think where i sidetracked myself here on hawkeye stuff 
are is there also going to have to be a sort of go or no go date for U.S. Open in the next couple of weeks that they have to, you know, if the travel things do not clarify that they have to stop, you know, uh, before like Indian Wells, obviously people remember stopped the night before qualify was going to start, but that was sort of more about the pandemic really sort of arriving. Right now, there's not a lot of the pandemic is here, it you know fluctuating up and down a bit in terms of severity in a given place at a given moment, but. Um, does the U.S. Open have more clarity to be able to think like, hey, we're, it's not going to be a last minute decision for them. Let's put it that way. Yeah, least, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I mean, anyway. I'm not really sure exactly at what point they're going to have to decide if they don't get it. I, I think they feel confident that there's a reasonably good chance. I will say there was good movement on it all. There was good, there's good positive movement. There's no one saying it can't happen. But, you know, you're dealing with governments making big decisions, so you just have to see. But I I think there's a reasonably good chance that it comes together in time. You know, Ben, one of the things when you look at the return of sport for all the leagues is it's actually been fairly common for people to set an initial start date for a training camp or the start of play. And then if they get closer, they go, we're going to push it back a week, two weeks, a month. That's been happening. Well, Really, if you think about it, that's all that tennis has said. It just said, we're going to push it back a week or two. Um, it's just unfortunate that the way we work, that means our event can't happen. Yeah. I mean, that's really the analogy, I'd say, to what we've seen in all the other sports. It just things didn't come together as quickly as people had hoped, and they had to co- overcome some external obstacles. We haven't been able to do it, and so unfortunately our event uh, couldn't run this year. Yeah, this that makes another thing that makes tennis sort of even, one of the tougher things to bring back is this sort of existing structure. Trying to, I'm, I'm get, we'll get more into that later. The different concepts yeah. that could be talked about, but um, in terms of pl- just on the travel stuff, you would uh, the player list, initial provisional player list was made public at some point, or at least leaked. Yeah, um, and there were a lot of big names on there. I mean, like you, I think you guys got more than sixty of the top hundred for the ATP signing up. Um, what what were you hearing from from players? Were players eager ready to go do they still have reservations about playing or what was about being able to come to the u.s and stuff like that i mean what was the sort of where were the from your i know obviously you're in t- close touch with players and their agents yeah during this process so, what was, what was yeah. their headset what was their headspace like um they really want to compete they really want to come back i mean um you you know the list did get leaked but you know in the final final list the cutoff was like 52 for 37 spots so no. You know, it was a vast, I mean, it was almost, I mean, you do the math, it's most of the people were coming to play. Yeah. That's obviously part of what makes this even harder to not be able to do it because it would have been phenomenal tennis. And, and my conversation with the players is I really wanted to give them an opportunity. I mean, that was a real motivation, uh, was to give them their first chance to come back. But I will also say they've been inc- so supportive. The amount of notes I've gotten from players and agents who'd literally in the last day said, we're, we're disappointed, but you, we know you couldn't have done more and thank you for trying. Yeah. I mean, literally just proactive notes, you know, from probably 10 players who are just said, thank you for putting in the effort. So um, they're a good, they're a good group of people. And uh, I know they want to get back on the court and they're, you know, they're grateful for people who are trying to help them do that. 
One of the things when we last spoke in June that there was some uncertainty about was the WTA side of your event, which has been it's been yeah. the ATBWDA combined event uh, since 2012, I think, on the same site, City Open. And you were it was a, listed as TBA when we talked. You were still having negotiations, and then later on, it came out that the WTA side of the event was going to be held was moving, uh, or the sanction was moving to Lexington, Kentucky, uh, for an international event there. And that event, which is still this is going to be the same week as when the City Open was going to be in mid August, is still on the calendar now. So I'm just curious if you can talk people through what happened with that side of the event and I guess how, if, and how things might look different, maybe on the WTA, if they have a different sort of approach to what events can yeah, so, be like yeah, right now. Yeah. So one of the things that happened as we got into it is that there's in Washington, one of the regulations is there's a capacity limit on the site. You're only allowed 250 people on the site. And as we started going through the space plan, and then at one point we were going to have a strict plus one, but the U.S. Open um, you said they were going to have plus three. And when you started, at, and we thought it wouldn't be right for people to come with three people to the United States and only have one being able to come to the tournament. And literally one day we were just running through the numbers and the site, and we just realized that having both the men and the women at the same time I mean, um, was just going to really stretch close to that capacity number. Um, and so then we looked at doing it at different days, which is something we were working on doing it the week before, which is ultimately where it went. But it, it actually, I think that for this one year, doing it at a separate site uh, has a lot of merit. And I, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of good reasons why it happened. So that was kind of how it ended up there. Um and what's ironic, what's interesting about it is that the WTA, I think, I mean, I, it's my understanding, is that because there's an event in Prague the same week as Lexington, I think they're going to be fine playing those events, even if there's travel restrictions, because yeah. if you're in Europe, you have an event to play. And if you're in America, you have an event to play. And so they have that. The ATP, first of all, it's a 500, and I don't think we would have been comfortable doing a 500-level event. Uh, where everyone can't compete, but also there's no opportunity in Europe. And so um, so I think they're going to go ahead no matter what, because the, the, even if the travel issues don't get resolved, they can go ahead and play, and they have a pretty amazing field. Yeah, no, that's what uh, Steve Simon did an interview with our friend of the show, Rima Abulail, and she was saying, basically, you know, what she wrote, passed from her, saying initially WTA did not want to resume until everybody had the ability to play, every event, I guess, but, but then Steve Simon admitted that they had to adjust their way of thinking and that some degree of tennis is better than no tennis at all. So this ideal that, you know, free movement was a prerequisite for the tours, I think was something that kind of got compromised out, um, saying, Hey, look, if we can do side-by-side competing events for people and I don't know, 85% of people have an event they can get to, that's better than, uh, sort of taking a, a stand on some sort of principle against having anything at all. Yeah, they. Um, I think what you just said is my understanding of it too, and it's interesting because the views on this, everyone's views are evolving, and I, I don't view that as a bad thing. I mean, a lot changes. You know, you talked about how our conversation changed from one one interview to another, and I think people are evolving as facts on the grounds change as as op as options surface, and I actually think that's good and it's smart. Um, and, you know, I think it's I think it worked out well. It turned out in the end it worked out well for the WTA because they're going to have an event uh, for everyone, regardless of whether you're in Europe or America. You think that the Lexington event will still be able to happen? Is that your understanding? As a, I do. Like, yeah, I do. I do. Yep. Yeah. 
So that could be the first one back. It's an interesting. It wasn't even on the map previously. So I it's know. Amazing how it's things can funny shift. The way things I know, and and what a field they have. I mean, I knew, you know, virtually all the big name players are are friends of mine. So I knew they all wanted to play, which is one of the reasons that we were so eager to find a way to do it in DC. But um, yeah. but they have an amazing field. So yeah, it it looks like it'll be really it'll be good. And this is something we talked about in the first April show. But just I'm curious about the how much having to miss this year was going to hurt tournaments long term viability uh so does how much sort of i don't know if you already had set to sink costs into maintenance of the stadium for 2020 i know that stadium takes a lot of upkeep uh uh and does this sort of jeopardize the future standing of the tournament for 2021 and, and beyond or how, how do you look at that assuming right now assuming i guess that you are planning coming back in 2021 well we're 100 percent coming back in 2021 and i i think if anything I think if anything, it makes it, I think it's hard to know, but from what I've been told by others that I think the fact that we put such effort into trying that we were willing to really take a risk, which we were, um, and we would have, if we wouldn't have been stopped by these external events, I think if anything's only increased the stature of the event, as I said, I think all of our stakeholders were really grateful that we tried. And then I think all of our great Stakeholders were grateful that they felt like we made a responsible decision. Um, and our, our fans are, you know, it, and that, that's another thing that we, we should come back and talk about is the fans, because that was another thing that changed over time. But our fans are, you know, who sold out almost all the sessions last year are now so eager to come back. Our sponsors have been amazing. They're so eager to come back. So, I guess if distance makes the heart grow fonder, we're going to be a very, uh, very we're going to be we're fondly, be a regarded very fond, fondly regarded event next year. Yeah, exactly. So what was the, I, I remember you talking, in the, I think on both the previous shows we did about this idea of possibly having a few fans on the ground. Yeah. This has been something that's been at the very top of tennis events that are happening now uh, around the world. Some of them have had zero fans, like this UTR event in France at the Mortagel Academy had zero fans. I think the Berlin event I was seeing had a very small number of fans. Uh, we'll talk about, I'm going to talk, ask you about World Team Tennis a bit later. We can get to that model later. And then, but obviously, um, Adria Tour had a lot of fans. What was your thinking before canceling on, on if you were going to go straight zero fans or if we we're going to try to get some number more than zero? So let, uh, let me start by saying that my single biggest motivation for the time and effort and investment I make in this event the single biggest is our tennis community of which I'm a product. You know, we've talked about the fact I was a ball kid and then I was transportation. I've been on the board. I've been a fan, but my greatest reward in all the tennis stuff I've done, whether it was world team tennis uh, or now the city open is coming on the site and seeing over a week, 80,000 people come 8,000 people a day, families that look just like mine did you know, colleagues at work, whatever it is, friends coming there and just having an amazing time around the sport of tennis. That's my, by far my single biggest motivation for why I do this. And, um, and then inspiring kids, like giving kids the great example of the wonderful athletes in our sport and giving them something to aspire to and to inspire to be. That's the motivation. So when we did this, we only had permission without fans, but because the trends were heading in the right direction, we thought there was a reasonably high chance that we would be able to have some number of fans socially distant and responsible. If you think about it, you know, it's an 8,000 seat stadium. There's no reason you shouldn't be able to have 500 or a thousand people come all distanced. And, um, 
and and our fans who've been coming to this tournament for generations and for decades, we told them everyone who's a season ticket holder will at least will be able to come. If it you can't come every session, you're the ones who are going to come. And people were so excited and so grateful. Hmm. And that was another thing that happened two weeks ago when the virus trend headed in the wrong direction. And again, our city is in great shape, but it has plateaued. It didn't decrease. It was pretty clear that they just were not going to relax that requirement. And so then you know, then you're kind of building a TV set, you know, you're not really building right. a, 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 a community experience. And again, that's not, not at all why we didn't do it because we would have done it for sure happily otherwise. But one of the main motivations for it goes away when no one can come. Plus the whole nature of like why you do it in the city, that's why you do it. So the people in that community can yeah. be there. Uh, and so that, that was definitely, you know, that was, that was that was just one of the things in recent weeks that was a real blow. Yeah, that TV set term gets to the point. This idea of tennis being a tour, and the reason tennis is a tour, is so we can go to different parts of the world, different people can see it, and also theoretically, so players can see the world, and the sport can see the world, and the sport can kind of promote different places. Lots of places like having tennis tournaments because it's a place, you know, you pick a bad example here, but like the reason we've all we had all heard of Wuhan before any of this pandemic is because it's the tennis tournament there, right? Yeah. So looking at it that way does tennis can tennis have some sort of radical reimagining during this time even if only temporary to stop or it's very demanding to have to build these big tv sets as you're calling them in different places around the world that have all these different border challenges and logistics challenges and different hotel bubble challenges all these different places and keep a sort of idea of being a marauding circus instead of going, you know, uh, to one place like the NBA is doing in Orlando. I think NBA has, I think, two courts they're going to play their games on. They have two TV sets they're going to use for competition, I believe. Maybe a third, I'm not sure, but I think two. Can, could tennis have done that? Is, is, if everything in tennis is so entrenched with different stakeholders, I mean, like, would you, for example, have been, I don't know if you ever considered, like, having the city open being branded and having it also be in New York, if that was going to be the, the, the U.S., uh, you know, bubble or something like that. Would that have been doable? Is that something that could ever be feasible in tennis in the, in the tours or, or, or not? <laughs> we, we actually did. We, we actually discussed that. Yeah. That was something that we had discussed and explored uh, with the USTA um, for all the reasons you said. So look, I think it's, it's, it's a really interesting potential idea if things don't change. I mean, right now, the plan is set for the next couple months and we're going to see what happens. But um, in the current environment we live in, as you said, there's really three reasons that you have events in cities. One is to let people in that community get to witness it and see it live. Two is to get, let the players see the world. And three is to promote the locations, which a lot of, as you know, a lot of cities yeah. care a lot about that. We would have had that in a huge way. And that's one thing that makes us sad because I was looking forward to using this platform to highlight a lot of great stuff in our community, but you lost the first, I mean, and play, so you, you don't have fans. And then because you have this bubble, players can't even do what they usually do, which is go explore the city. And they're going to go hotel site, hotel site. Right. So they're not doing that anyway. So if the world stays like this, you would think that considering some sort of location and maybe depending on what it is, maybe you change surfaces or you do, something so it's not just the same old same old you'd have to mix it up a little bit but doing something like uh you know what the nba and soccer are doing i think has a lot of merit the only the only counter to that is that right now 
the tournaments in Europe think they can have some fans Mm -hmm. and travel in Europe is a lot more open because the virus is more in control. So um, I think for now, I think if you were, if this was an American tour and you had to start with a clean sheet of paper to play in this environment, that's what you would do. Yeah. You would pick a place, you'd go and you play a bunch of tournaments in the place and you try to mix, make it look a little different every time. But that's what you would do. But, you know, we're going to have this experiment now for the next couple months where there's a calendar and then we're going to see how the world looks and where the virus is. And I think but I think that idea should be something that would be considered depending on how the world looks. Yeah. No, I, I just look at it and I, I, I'm looking at like the October ATP calendar, basically, which right now the China stuff is its own different issue. China sounding like they're probably yeah. they're not going to want to have any events, which is going to be a whole different fiasco, especially for WTA. But then also we have right now on the calendar, like I'm looking at the same week. So like there's Moscow, Stockholm and Antwerp all in the same week. And then the week after that, you have Vienna, Basel already canceled. And then you have the Paris Masters and then Milan and then London. Like for me, especially because I'm guessing the numbers, those are all indoor tournaments. I'm guessing the numbers for crowds allowed in indoor events will still be even smaller in Europe. Like, I just think you save so much money in terms of infrastructure and all the things you're talking about, Hawkeye, this, this, and this, that you aren't getting to offset with fan income this year by just putting it all in one place. And, you know, having, you know, it can even be between matches on the same court. You switch the lighting from Moscow to Stockholm on the same day or something and have, I don't know, some yeah. sort of... Or have, or have, the, mean, have the Russian-Swedish open and have it be some big thing. I don't know. I mean, yeah. just like, uh, yeah, I just yeah. think there's there's room for consolidation there, potentially. But it does take a lot of people giving up their a bit of their autonomy, which, as we know, in tennis is not something people do readily. Yeah, well, look, it happened already in, in, in New York at the USTA, right? I mean, yeah. they came together to host the Cincinnati Tournament in New York. The sponsors stayed with it. I think they're going to play it on different courts than they do the open or highlight yeah. different courts. And I think it's a good idea. You know, as we've said other sports are doing it. So I think it's something that needs to be considered. The, again, just as someone who loves this sport and loves our event, you know, doing it where I, no one in our community could go and where the players when they're here can't really explore our, our city. And you're not really making, I mean, you're going to lose money no matter what we weren't yeah. going to make money no matter what it's, you know, you it kind of does it does make you say we should consider options like that for sure well this gets me into the play the league that really and it's one of the rare leagues in tennis uh world team tennis that did really go for this model and uh you were just there recently at, at greenbrier in west virginia uh to see this in action world team tennis which had been had one of people who know it well at all no, it has one of the most in, normally the most intense travel schedules of any league out there in terms of day in day out travel 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 between different cities putting it all in one place they got an incredibly strong player field this year i think probably their strongest in decades in terms of the caliber of players they got maybe since the 70s in world team tennis since uh, chris everett and jimmy <laughs> connors didn't play the french joke exactly. since jimmy connors didn't win the grand slam and i think 74 or 5 Right, because he played World Team Tennis instead of the French Open. Yeah, you know? so so that was sort of that's sort of what it might look like. I mean, I don't think people. I think World Team Tennis is still something that a lot of tennis fans who are fans of quote unquote traditional tennis have a hard time grasping. But I do think that that's what tennis could look like. And it, and so far, you know, they just released today. They got they did their mid season testing. No one tested positive. They also um, different sort of topic. They had their their code of conduct, which they kicked Danielle Collins out of the league of for for breaching that. 
do you is there what what you went to World in Tennis? I'm curious what you saw there, and if you think that is some sort of it's again pretty radically different from the tour as we know it, but the tours as we know it, and the slams as we know it. But could something like that be uh, a bigger thing in in a sort of if the pandemic doesn't look like it's getting better in 2021, it's something that could be somehow expanded into being a more uh, adopted model. <laughs> well, yeah. So a couple things they've done a great job. They've gotten an amazing player field, as you said. It's unbelievable. You look at the matchups every day and the depth and breadth of that field. They have unbelievable media exposure. I think they started with most of, I mean, it's divided between CBS, ESPN, and Tennis Channel and Facebook. And, you know, I think ESPN has moved like 15 matches to ESPN2. And CBS, the match I went to on Sunday, was on the big CBS network and had fantastic ratings. And the finals will be on CBS and tennis channels embraced it. So it's a huge success. And then the players are like in a little bit of tennis paradise. I mean, it's it's a wonderful resort. It's kind of secluded, but it's very lovely. There's a ton of activities. You know, they they stay a five minute walk from the courts. They they love the team format of coming back to competition. I think it's going to be fascinating. I was watching Jack Sock is really doing great so you know it, it world team tennis again it, a lot of people don't follow it that closely but i've been close to it now for over a decade and i've seen players whose careers have been changed by playing team tennis just mm-hmm. because the amount of matches you play and the confidence you can get and boy jack's doing great so they're at, they're getting great competitive experience um and it's i just think it's an overall it's a it's a massive success at the moment and i think it'll remain that way um, and I think it could be the template for what we talked about. It's also in a place where they are letting a small number of fans come. And so, uh, yeah, I think it, it definitely could be. It definitely could be a model. I mean, it's you know the, our match on uh, our match Washington. We beat Las Vegas on Sunday. It was like a hundred degrees. It was super competitive. It was incredible tennis. You know, Tommy Paul's playing Sam Query, and the Bryans are playing, and Venus was playing. I mean, it was incredible. And then, you know, an hour after the match, uh, there's a PGA golf course there. And I watch and like our players and the Vegas players are off about to tee off on this absolutely beautiful golf course as the sun's setting. I mean, I don't think it gets much better for the players than that. Yeah. Um, And they're all happy. And so, uh, yeah, I think there might be something there. You meant meant, the one thing, the one main reservation I had about World of Tennis was the fan thing, which I do think just like having it not be a more airtight bubble because the fans are coming and going. They're not, you know, there. And I guess they could also theoretically run into people elsewhere on the resort. The resort itself is still open to the general business. I think whatever that looks like during a a pandemic. Yeah. I mean, you and I don't exactly, we we've talked about this and I don't totally agree because I think if you, if you're going to do what the NBA is where it's an airtight bubble and it's only, it's a true, true bubble and no one else is going anywhere. That's one thing, but that's not what te- and, and and you know team sports and especially where there's contact amongst the players it's a it's I think it's even more imperative to do that because um, if someone gets it you're not going to be able to control the spread I think the idea is in tennis and they proved this in Atlanta where unfortunately Francis caught it but no one else right. did because the nature of the sport is that you can control it so if you're not doing the airtight bubble and you're at a resort and you're going to the restaurant with other people anyways I don't it really doesn't matter that there's fans in the stands it really makes no difference the players weren't getting any closer they were less close to them than they were to the waiters serving them in the restaurants i mean right yeah so i guess i guess the exposure then is outside the outside the match environment yeah 
Yeah. So exactly. So so, but but that's the same thing anywhere. If you're not doing the airtight airtight bubble, which is really hard in tennis because you just don't have many places like they have in Disney World for the NBA, where you have a hotel next to the courts. As long as there's, you know, you're staying somewhere else, you're gonna run into other people. And then the fan thing, it's just, it's no more risk than what they're taking doing other things. So it's actually less risk. So one one other thing, I I hinted at it. I I sort of mentioned in passing the Collins thing, but I'm curious. um, One of the things we talked about on a recent episode of this of the show was about the idea of a code of conduct in tennis in terms of the pandemic. And one of the things that happened since we last spoke uh, was the the meltdown of the Adria tour and um and all that was which was a huge international news story it was on the like the lead stories on the NBC nightly news that night was about Adria tour which was shocking and so I'm, I'm curious did, did that affect your planning at all uh that that moment did that make what and were do you think that having some sort of enforceable code of conduct like world in tennis has shown ahead with the Collins situation is something that's gonna be necessary for tournaments to be viable going forward yeah, so the Adria tour didn't influence anything because you could okay. just watch it. And I mean, when I first saw that, when I first turned on the tennis channel, I think, and I watched it, I literally had to go look for the watermark to see if this was live or an <laughs> yeah. encore because I thought this can't be happening right now. <laughs> just when you saw it, just all of it, and you yeah. saw on social media was happening. So we never considered running an event like that. And they thought it was safe because in that country, that was kind of where they were. Um, but we were never going to do it. So there was, it didn't, it it didn't really inform us at our views at all. Um, you know, I think the, again, I think the Atlanta one is interesting because I really bums me out. So I I love Francis that he got COVID and had to pull out of world team tennis, but the good side of it is it shows that you can have someone get it in a, in a tournament and no one else got it. So that's a, that's a positive thing. I do think, you know, as, as it is for all of us in all of our lives, you're only as good as, you know, the other people you're around. And so I think you do have to have a code of contact and you have to enforce it. And I think it's, I mean, I also like Danielle, but I, you know, I think Carlos did what he had to do. Definitely. And I think it sends a strong message to people. And I think, I frankly think that the people who probably were the most grateful for that were the other players. Yeah. And we're all, we're all experiencing this in our lives. We're all dependent on the people we're trusting who we decide we're going to be close to that they're being responsible to. That's the sort of social contract we're all engaging in, no matter what you do, no matter yeah. who you are. And, uh, and so if someone, if you find out that someone has broken that, I think there has to be consequences. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Having lived with a roommate during part of this, I definitely know how, like how <laughs> interdependent you are on someone else's behavior to keep your own quarantine game strong. <laughs> Mark, thank you very much for, for being on here again. Um, we'll see how things go. Obviously, U.S. Open still, like you said, there's still a couple of things that need to be resolved for that. But then we have the Europe tournaments, and we'll see how they're doing. Australia, I guess it's not that far away now, but it feels like it's going to be approaching faster than usual. Um, and they're having issues down there. So hopefully everything keeps going well. Any any sort of uh, parting thoughts from you? Thank you again for being on three times this, this uh, year, completing as we sort of finish what seems like a, a relatively tight end to the the Mark Ein trilogy here uh, episodes. Uh, any, any sort of any parting thoughts you have on what, on what no, you're looking just, forward to I mean, next? My one, my one parting thought, Ben, is like we just have to keep this all in perspective. Yeah, I'm really bummed that we can't run our tennis tournament. There's a lot of people who are you know disappointed we can't run a tennis tournament, but it's a but it's a tennis tournament. So yeah. let's be real. Like this has been 
a lot harder year for a lot of people. Um, and there's yeah. been, you know, a lot of lives lost, a lot of people who've gotten really sick. There's been huge economic ramifications, which are touching tens of millions of people across the globe. And, and I, honestly, it's just not that important in the grand scheme of things. It doesn't mean that it, it is. I mean, it's interesting. I was with our mayor today. And we were talking about it, and I mm. sort of said this to her. And she said, yeah, but sports really do lift people. And it was interesting. And she's right. And it does. And that's why we should keep keep pushing on to do these things. And we should try everything we can if they can be done safely. They should be we should do it because it, it, people need the they need the distraction. They need the pleasure. They need the inspiration. And so if they can be done safely, they should. But if an event ends up not being able to happen because of travel issues or because the virus you know, spreads too much. It's just a tennis tournament and tennis tournaments will come back when this is all over. But, you know, there's just a lot of people who are suffering a lot worse and we should just keep them in mind and realize that's actually should be everyone's focus through all this. Indeed. They definitely keep that perspective forefront of mind. Mark, thank you very much for being the, on here. Hey, Ben, can again. we throw one? Sorry, hey, Ben, yeah, one other ahead. quick thing. Sorry, Please. the one other thing for your specific audience, because we didn't get to it that I also want to say okay. um, is... Just the the collaboration. I know people think that tennis mm. is a sort of disjointed uh, ecosystem of stakeholders all out for their own interests. But I got to say, if adversity brings out people's true nature, then what we saw would make you feel amazing about the tennis world because everyone collaborated. Everyone was helpful. Everyone was supportive when we were going. They were supportive when we were going through a hard decision. They were understanding and supportive, ultimately, of the decision that had to be made, the amount of outpouring of people wanting to help just to lend words, whatever it is. It truly was amazing. I not only any of us would guess it, that that's the way it worked. Sometimes organizations that generally uh, in tennis that don't work well together are now everyone's working super closely uh, towards common goals. And, And so I think if there's another silver lining in this is hopefully coming out of this that that amount, that level of collaboration and and uh, and working together is something that's an enduring uh, legacy of a tough time. I have to say, as disappointed as I was coming out of it a day later, what I actually feel even more is just gratitude for all the people who um, who've just been who've just been absolutely terrific uh, through this and and even afterwards. That's very good to hear, and hopefully, yeah, hopefully that spirit of cooperation and togetherness can can persist in tennis during and after a strange global crisis. So on that more positive note, thank you very much, Mark. Appreciate it. Of course. Thanks, Ben. Great to be with you. So thank you very much to Mark Ein for coming on the show. And I refer to it as the Mark Ein trilogy there at the end. And I really do thank him for coming on three times. I do think his three episodes, if anyone wants to binge them back to back to back, would provide a pretty interesting artifact or document trail on what is the story of tennis in 2020, the uncertainty that goes into it, the decisions that have been made, all the new different factors, the hope, the disappointments, and so on. So once again, thanks to Mark for all of his time this year on the show and wishing him the best of luck for his tournament in 2021. Still a lot of uncertainty in the world out there about tennis, how this goes forward. The U.S. Open, as Mark said there, still has to have some immigration things get sorted out that have not yet been sorted out really in order to happen. So as optimistic as they're being, there's still some major challenges ahead for tennis in 2020 and possibly beyond that. It's not like everything's going to magically change with the drop of a ball. We see the news in Australia where we have many friends of the show down in Australia in the Melbourne area, which is having another spike in cases after they had had 
months and months of pretty exemplary virus combating. So there's unfortunately just no real finish line in sight yet for this thing. And hopefully we get there at some point. But in the meantime, as Mark said, also tennis is not the most important thing, but it would be a nice distraction to have back for the world. But we can keep it in the context of just that what it is. We want to thank everybody for supporting the show. As always, you can follow us on Twitter at NCR underscore tennis. You can send us emails, no challenges remaining at gmail.com. You can also subscribe to us on Patreon, where we have lots of exciting Patreon content exclusive to listeners or exclusive to backers, excuse me, of our Patreon there, including up, coming up soon is our second round of our Codenames game, which features Courtney and I competing against Team Jabulail, made up of Ange Jabur and Reem Abulail. And so those videos will be coming up within the next couple of weeks. We hope you enjoy those as well as, as much as we've enjoyed making them, which has been a considerable amount. We do not have any new backers, actually, to thank since our last show. Very sad, but maybe you can be the next one on the next show if you want to join and support uh, before then. Our next show will be, I believe, I'm assuming, unless no breaking news happens, will be an interview I did with Glenn Greenwald about his work on the Martina Navratilova documentary he's been working on, which is a very personal project for him, and then also how that's been affected by various, as Mark would say, exogenous things in the world, different things in the culture that have colored and interfered with that project. It's an interesting chat that I hope you will enjoy. Glenn is a big tennis fan and it's a real passion project for him. But sorry, back to the Patreon. I need to thank our Patreon slam champ level backers who are Audrey Wellens, Joseph Har, Susanna W., Mary Carrillo, Liz Kennel, Chuang Nguyen, Jonathan Weinbaum, and Betty. We also want to thank our GOAT backer, as always, J-O-D. That's it for us. Thanks to y'all once again. Bye-bye.